Nahum. Who wrote the book of Nahum? Hmm, Nahum. His hometown, we're told, Elkosh, is a city in southern Judah near where the prophet Micah lived. When we try to date the book of Nahum, we actually can date Nahum very specifically because he mentions the recent fall of Noaman, which is the Hebrew name for Thebes. And we know that Thebes fell in 663 B.C. He talks about the coming destruction of Nineveh. All of this prophecy is going to be about the imminent destruction of uh, the Assyrians and Nineveh. We know that happened in 612. We also know that Thebes was reconstructed in 654 B.C. And Nahum doesn't mention that at all. He only mentions the recent fall. So we can definitely date this book somewhere between 663 and 654. We can narrow it down to a 10-year window there. This is about 100 years after the prophet Jonah. Jonah went into Nineveh eventually and called the Ninevites to repentance. And they responded with repentance. 100 years later, that repentance is nowhere to be found. They have returned to their evil, warmongering ways. They have now conquered, at this point, the northern kingdom. So on your sheets, there will not be any more northern kings because there is no more northern kingdom. And they are threatening and aggravating the southern kingdom pretty relentlessly. Nahum preached during the reign of King Manasseh. This is the darkest period in all of Judah's history up to this point. Israel is a nation that has completely turned its back on God at this point. And we know, because we talked about the history, that eventually they will be completely conquered and carried off into captivity. That threat is ever-present. So this is now not like past prophets we've read, where they're in a time of prosperity and ease. This is one of the times of constant threat and fear and uncertainty and, and unsettlement. And this is because they've turned their back on God. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them of where this path leads. And Nahum is one of those prophets. Nahum, does anybody know what Nahum's name means? That word, Nahum, means comfort. Into a situation of darkness and fear and anxiety about what will happen, the Lord sends his word, which is comfort or should be comfort to his people who will hear it and will follow it. Assyria, as I said, is very, very strong. They've already conquered the northern kingdom. They're now threatening and oppressing Judah. They've demanded tribute from the kings of Judah. The people can see with their own eyes, if they will see it, the judgment of the Lord on Israel. And this has now been going on for, uh, you know, we're 100 years past Jonah. We're 50 or 60 years past some of the good times in Israel's history. And so the people can't remember what it looks like for God to judge the enemies of Israel. They can only remember what it looks like for God to judge them, for them to be in hard times. And so they feel oppressed by God and put down, not that they would connect that with their disobedience, the righteous do, uh, but they don't remember seeing the enemies of God be judged by God. Megan, would you turn to Psalm 74? 
O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none, none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Levithian. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. We talked last week about whether or not we think about God as can he or will he. And the musicians who wrote this psalm knew that God could do all these things. He could restore his people. He could punish Israel's enemies. He could, that that psalm particularly is about the destruction of the temple. He could bring his people back into his presence. But would he? And the psalmist admits it doesn't feel like he will. It doesn't feel like God will care about his people, will restore them, will punish his enemies. We feel like things are very dark. And so Nahum, comfort, stands as a testimony to God's justice and salvation and to how particular, specific, purposeful, targeted they are. Israel is well aware at this point that God is willing to punish his own covenant people, the faithful remnant in Israel is well aware that God is willing to punish his covenant people. They know that he can impart justice to the heathen nations. They're not sure that he will. It doesn't feel like he will, these people who are persecuting him. Assyria has become quite powerful. The center of the known universe at this point is Nineveh, the most wicked city where false gods are worshipped. And the pagan kings see their success and they see the fall of northern Israel and they see the oppression of Judah and they say, where is your God? 
And if he exists, what kind of God is he? And God sends Nahum, comfort, his own word, into the midst of the people to answer those questions, both for the Jew and for the scoffing pagan. He sends the word of the Lord. Daphne, will you read 1, 2, and 3? Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum comes out of the gate. He will. It's not just that he can bring justice. He will. The Lord will. And so this is the answer that God sends to his people through Nahum. That's the story of what's happening in Nahum. But we're going to look at this book a little bit differently because um, Nahum, like all the prophets, but it's a particularly good example, is very carefully constructed from a literature perspective. It has a lot going on where the way it is written is intended to reinforce the message and to help us understand what's happening. So, sorry, not sorry, that today will feel a little bit like sophomore lit because I love literature and I love the techniques that God uses through all kinds of different voices in Scripture uh, to help us understand his word and to reveal himself to us. So the method reinforces the message. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is a lot of the methods in Nahum and how they highlight the message. Because again, this happens throughout a lot of the prophets, but we're going we're gonna to cherry pick here and, and spend some time on these things. It, it is in many ways a literary masterpiece. There's a ancient literature scholar, J.M.P. Smith, because he gets four names. When you study ancient literature, you get four names. Though the rhythm and meter of Nahum are not so smooth and regular as as is the case with some Hebrew prophets, yet in some respects the poetry of Nahum is unsurpassed in the Old Testament's. His excellent is not in sublimity of thought, depth of feeling, purity of motive, or insight into truth and life. It is in his descriptive power. He has an unexcelled capacity to bring a situation vividly before the mind's eye. Accurate and detailed observation assists in giving his pictures truth and life. The hallmark of Nahum is that interplay, the literary nature of the book reinforcing the main message of the book, which is pretty simple, which is the destruction of Nineveh, that God will, in fact, bring his wrath and judgment against Assyria in Nineveh, that God's enemies persecuting his people will not stand and that injustice will not endure. So the first verse, verse one, Karen, would you read verse one? An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. That's the introduction to the book. That sets up, all right, here's what we're dealing with. An oracle, Nahum, here we go. And then every other major section of the book has a thematic statement about justice and deliverance. So that was the first part Karen read, which was verse 2. That's a thematic statement about judgment. And then it will be followed by an unpacking of that thematic statement. 
Stephen, will you read chapter 2, verse 1 and 2? The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Same thing. Thematic statement about judgment that then in the following verses, which in that case is verse 2 all the way through chapter 3, verse 19, it's a big section, unpacks that and gives more detail and vivid imagery about what that's going to look like. The first chapter, if you look at verses 2 through 10, it's primarily a poem focusing on God's good and just nature and how the result of that will be certain judgment on those who plot against him. So, Andrew, will you read 2 through go two through 5? Okay. Sorry, chapter 1, 2 through 5. Okay. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. So this poem of the judgment that's going to come for those who plot against him. And Matt, will you read chapter 1, 11 through 15? From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So... First chapter, it's a poem. It focuses on the good and just nature of God, his certain judgment against those who plot against him, and the reassurance to his people that he will uh, come and do what is for their good. And then the second and third chapters take that poem, those truths about God, and they apply it to the very specific situation with the Assyrians in Nineveh. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Talking about the that specific judgment and the, the restitution of God's people. It's in that second section that Nahum is so masterful with metaphors, imagery, and he uses taunts. That's the only part of the homework I wish that I had succeeded in giving out and you had a chance to look at before today, was be to really read in detail the taunts of Nahum against God's enemies because he uses them to paint an incredible, vivid picture of what God is doing and what he will do with respect to this situation. So throughout all of this, Nahum uses a lot of literary technique to reinforce 
the message of who God is and of the destruction that is coming. And some of these uh, techniques will be pretty familiar to you, and some of them may be new. He uses acrostics. We'll talk about that in a second. He delays identification of the audience. We've heard this once before in another prophet that wanted to get the people's buy-in on this general idea of God's wrath before he said, oh, by the way, it's you. (laughs) So delayed identification of the audience. He uses those taunts that I've mentioned, and then he uses this pattern of corresponding verses for, for reinforcement and to draw attention to what's happening. So those are the four we're going to talk about this morning. First, let's talk about acrostics. Uh, what are acrostics? Sophomore lit, come on. Letters, letters starting certain the first letter of the words or of the sentence, you take all the first letters and that has some sort of pattern. So it can either spell something or it can be an alphabetical acrostic, which is the first word is A, the next one is B, C, D, E. Psalm 119, if you were to look at Psalm 119 in your Bible, it has the Hebrew alphabet as the heading for every paragraph. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, because it's an alphabetical acrostic. But there are lots of examples of acrostics. Psalm 119. Also, uh, do you know what the ichthus is? The ichthus is the fish drawing that early Christians did, right? Why do we call it an ichthus? It's an acrostic. Jesus Christ of God, Son and Savior. That's an acrostic. Helps you remember things. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 is an alphabetical acrostic. Each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what's the point of acrostics? I mean, they're cool, but what what good do they do? They really help you memorize. They also um, demonstrate the intentionality of the author, the poetic skill, the the worthiness of this topic to not just be blurted out willy-nilly, but to be structured and organized in a meaningful way. They also can teach completeness. That's the point of Psalm 119. What is Psalm 119 about? The law, the word of the Lord, the revelation of God. Why would it make sense that a psalm about focused, laser focused on the revelation of God, the word of God, the law of God, would include every letter from A to Z. It's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It is, it is complete. And in Hebrew literature especially, alphabetical acrostics represent the orderly way God made the world. That there is an order and a structure and a design and a purpose. And so when you talk about the things of God, alphabetical acrostics show both completeness and order. So that's the purpose of of an acrostic. Let's talk about Nahum's acrostic. So verses 2 through 9, chapter 1, are an alphabetical acrostic. But here's what happens. As you look at 2 through 9, and I don't expect you to see this because Hebrew. (laughs) It's the equivalent of A, B, C, D, E, F, 
G H I J K Z N X Q O L. What's the poem is more than just those verses, right? Two through nine is part of the poem. But the poem is most of the rest of that chapter. The poem's bigger than the acrostic. So this is what's called a partial acrostic. What's the purpose of a partial acrostic? It's not complete. It makes you, re- I mean, it's very obvious when it goes into disorder. Does the theme change? Like when it goes to C? Mm-mm. It's, where, at what verse does it switch to C? Uh, 10. 9 is the last verse in the acrostic. Pam. Pam, read verse 10 for me. Chapter 1, verse 10. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. I don't think that's... Do chapter 2. Oh, 2, I think it's 1. No, that one's 2. No, chapter 1. Chapter 1, yeah. No, I thought you were on chapter 2. No, 1. Tangled. They're like tangled. And now the letters of the alphabetical acrostic start to get tangled. And why are things tangled? Because Yahweh shows up. God's enemies are going along just fine. They're living the way they want to live. They're doing what they want to do. They're persecuting God's people. And when Yahweh shows up to avenge his people, chaos ensues. (laughs) God's destructive power, the destructive power of a jealous God come to avenge his people throws our world, as we see it, into chaos. We threw God's world into chaos, but we were pretty happy with the order that we made. And then when God comes in judgment, in defense of his people, he he throws our worlds into chaos. That's what the vengeance of God does. Yes. So when I looked at Proverbs 31, I mean, I just see everyone starting with, I know this is she, 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 she. So all those would be translated in Hebrew. They would be every verse ten through thirty one really? starts with a different letter of the alphabet. Hebrew word order is nothing like English word order. We put the subject first. She, 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 she. Right. right? Hebrew puts the most important word of the sentence first. So she walks to the store is walk to the store she did. It's like Yoda. And if you could say the exact same sentence, she walks to the store, and if what you were trying to emphasize is the person who walked, you'd start it with she. If you're trying to emphasize that she walked instead of drove, walked would be the first word of the sentence. And if you're trying to indicate that she went to the store rather than home, store would be the first word of the sentence. Hebrew is a mess. (laughs) A delightful, delightful mess. So yeah, very hard to see in English. But there usually should be a footnote in your Bibles at the bottom that says this is an alphabetical acrostic. There may not be, but there should be. Oh, yes, it does. 10 through 31 are an acrostic poem. Each verse beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They're trying to help because you can't see it in the English at all. 
So, all right, partial acrostics show the effect of Yahweh in this one. Partial acrostics can show a lot of things. Many times what they're showing is chaos, things descending into chaos. But what's interesting about this one is it doesn't start with chaos, even though it starts with the wickedness of God's enemies. It starts with order because that's how they perceive things to be, the world as they want it. And God's people receiving this, being on the receiving end of this, look at it and say, I guess this is just how the world is. God's people get the short end of the stick. Life stinks. And then Yahweh shows up and he shows up in judgment and it descends all of this order that God's enemies have put on the world into what is for them chaos, disruptive order, but not total destruction. That will come later. This is just disorder, chaos. This is not total destruction yet. All right. Other th- uh, next technique: delayed identification of the audience. Uh, does anybody have the NIV? The NIV messes this up. NIV is a good translation, but the NIV really messes this up. They add "O Judah" in verse twelve because they're afraid the reader won't understand who God's talking about. But that's kind of the point. You're not supposed to understand who God's talking about yet. NIV adds Nineveh in verses 8 and 11 and verse 1 of chapter 2. But you're not supposed to know that's who he's talking about yet. Because chapter 1 is not a specific prophecy against Nineveh. Or a specific prophecy of restoration for the people in the time of Nahum. Verse 1 is a poem about the general truth about God, that God will judge unrighteousness and God will restore his people. In all times, in all places, that is the mentality of God. I am working out my purposes against unrighteousness. And so they, the NIV adds specifics in a chapter that's really intended to be general. Nahum is delaying the identification for two reasons. One is, like I said, it opens it up to a broader audience. It makes the point more general than just the people Nahum's immediately speaking to. But it also creates suspense. You want to know who they're talking about. That's why the editors of the NIV were chomping at the bit to add those proper nouns in there so that we could be clear who God is talking about. And it makes you wonder, against whom is this judgment coming? Who is going to be restored by this? But it's not just about Nineveh. Anyone who sets them up in opposition to God or God's people should be afraid. And any of God's people, any of his remnant, no matter how put down, no matter how oppressed they are by the world around them, should have confident hope that God will restore his people, period. No exceptions. So in chapter 1, verse 1, when it says an oracle concerning Nineveh, is that not... That's the editorial addition to the minor prophets that Nahum himself may have written. It's hard to say with these prophets how many of them wrote their own, how many were written by scribes who heard it later. God doesn't give us a lot of that information. But yes, that's a great correction. We get it in chapter 1, verse 1, because we get an introduction to what this book is about. The hearing audience of the prophecy of Nahum didn't get verse 1. All right. Let's talk about the taunts. Renee, chapter 2, will you read 11 through 13? 
where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness would wait, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. All right, you everybody get the lion taunt? All right, let's, let's do the next taunt, which is chapter 3, 4 through 7. Lauren, will you read three, chapter 3, 4 through 7? And for all the countless glories of the prostitute, graceful in their deadly charms, who betrays nations with her glories, and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness, and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? This is the harlot taunt. All right, Jake, will you read 8 through 10? Are you better than thieves that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the, Le- put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. And for her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. So that's a historical taunt using events of somewhat recent history, the fall of Thebes, that all of these people would be aware of. And then the last is the locust. Crystal, will you read... It starts at the end of verse 15. You'll notice a little pickup there right at the end of 15 and read 15 through 17. So the end of 15? Yep. So multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. Yep. It, it will devour you like the locust, multiply yourself like the locust, multiply yourself like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. The sun rises, they fly away, no one knows where they are. All the way to 19? No, 17 was right. So that's the locust taunt. Alright, here's what each of these taunts do. They contrast greatness with something less than greatness. And they suggest disgrace and shame. So what Nineveh perceives as unassailable greatness is going to be revealed to be less than unassailable greatness. And the fact that they boast and take pride and solace in their greatness, which turns out not to be greatness means they will end up in disgrace and shame. So the lion, they perceive themselves, he uses this analogy, boy, you really think you're the king of the jungle, don't you? 
You you really you just roar and you tear apart others to feed your young cubs. You use your power and position for your own benefit rather than for what is good. You really think you're great. But you're not the lion of Judah. You're not the real lion. That's not real power. And so at the end of that taunt, chapter 2, verse 12 or 13, God says, here's what I'm going to tear you to pieces. There is one who can tear you to pieces, you who think you are this mighty lion. Then there's the harlot taunt, chapter 3, 4 through 7. This is, you think you can find pleasure wherever you want it. You think it is good and pleasurable to practice sexual immorality. And you love to, quote unquote, play the whore. Well, if you love, and this is where Nahum gets funny and clever uh, in his sort of crass way of speaking to them is, hey, you love showing the world your parts, don't you? We will pull your skirts up over your head and we will show them for everyone as you lie naked in the street. You wanted to be naked, didn't you? You wanted the world to see you, didn't you? Here you go. What you perceived as greatness is not. And the result of your sinful rebellion and error is shame. Just like what happened to to Thebes. They thought they were unassailable behind their walls. They thought their cities and their armies were uh, their their, uh, protection. And what happened to them? They got blowed up. (laughs) When the Lord decides to bring, uh, to lay waste to a nation, there's no nation that can stand against it. There are no people who have defenses that are adequate to prevent the Lord's judgment. No nation or person can make a permanent stand against Yahweh. And that's what the Assyrians think. And that's what the remnant are starting to buy into is they're safe from God. They're so strong. They're so big. They're, and God's, wait, whoa, you guys' measurement of what greatness is is all wrong. It's all skewed. And if you take uh, comfort and pride and solace in that level of greatness, when it is utterly destroyed by an omnipotent God, you'll be left in disgrace and shame. And then finally, the locusts. You multiply. You think you grow. You think that you're too numerous to be dealt with. You consume everything around you. You swarm the earth like locusts. You think you're this mighty force. And what will happen? Bugs die. (laughs) Bugs die all the time. And that's what's going to happen to these. So no one can make a permanent stand against Yahweh. No people and no nation. And when you try to, The judgment of God will come upon you, and you will be publicly disgraced. None of these is secret. These are all publicly visible judgment of God on his enemies that bring disgrace and shame on the people that are judged. Questions about the taunts? They're pretty intense. You you talked a little bit about it, but just the idea, just thinking about this now, like, how a Christian is supposed to react to these taunts um, versus how a non-Christian would kind of see these. Meaning just like some of these taunts can sometimes... I'm listening, I'm listening. 
No, it's okay. I'm having a hard time like verbalizing what I'm. No, no, I understand because it's the first question on next week's homework for Zephaniah because uh, that question needs to be answered and it will come up as well in Zephaniah. When these threats of judgment are made in Scripture, what effect should they have on believers and what effect should they have on unbelievers and how does that impact how we think and talk about it? So can I punch you off for one week? Absolutely. That way you can think about it through the lens of Zephaniah. Is it it fair to say that there's a, uh, in each one of these, my mind goes to like Romans one, but like their glory is what ends up being their shame, right? Like if, your your might is what I'm going to tear you apart. And, and, right, gonna, uh, and it's because they think of their strength, their their perspective, they, their order that they put into the universe. Connect it back to the poem in chapter 1. The order that unrighteousness has put into the universe, where you have to cheat to get ahead, where might makes right, that oppressive order that sinful humanity put into the universe, we think of as the strongest of the strong, strength and power. And so we calculate who's going to win and what's going to work by that measure. We look at the lion and we say, no one can assail the lion. And then guns came along, right? And we look at, like, and so God says, you measure strength all wrong. You can measure these, however you want is fine. But when God comes in his judgment, that is nothing. And the fact that you truly believe that this would somehow help you or protect you will be your undoing. And it's why you'll be so ashamed. You'll be ashamed because you were so completely wrong. Everything you put your trust in is torn to pieces in the lion. It, right, right, dead bugs, like the locust. I mean, it's very graphic. All right. Finally, the corresponding verses. There's this pattern of corresponding verses. So chapter 1 describes God's judgment. That was verses 2 through 11. And then there's a sentence underlying that judgment. I don't mean sentence like in the grammatical sense. I mean a judge issuing a sentence that underlines the judgment. Uh, Jake, will you read chapter 1, 12 through 14? Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for your Bible. So again... Setting aside verse 1, which is our introduction, this is the generalized judgment and sentence on people who set themselves up against God. He doesn't name names to this point, but he is using the second person pronoun, you, 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 so much that it should make people wonder, Who's he, is he talking about me? Who's he talking about here? I need to find out who God's talking about. And in one sense, he's talking about all of his enemies. And that's what chapter one's about. But then there's a corresponding way of doing this where you add the specifics. And that's what happens throughout chapters two and three is you have the same pattern verses of God's judgment and then explicit application to Nineveh. Chapter two and then continuing in chapter three is where he specifically refers to Nineveh and the Ninevites. And this is the judgment that he's bringing on to them. 
And this is helpful for us because this is one of the ways that we know that a prophecy can be applied to multiple situations where it's first given generally and anonymously, and then we're given an example of how it is applied specifically to one place and time in the history of God's people. And that that pattern, that way of writing, really helps us understand, to separate out what the prophecy itself is and then what the application of that prophecy looks like. Because it would be a real shame if what we took away from the book of Nahum was that God is really, really mad at Assyria and those Ninevites were going to get what's coming to them. Because what good does that do us? It did a lot of good to the people in the time of Nahum who were dealing with the oppression of the Ninevites. It did them a whole lot of good. And we could look back and say, hey, that's great. God did that for his people in the time of Nahum. Yay, God. And we should do that. That's good. But the way Nahum wrote it, we can also then say, wait a minute. Reading chapter 1 and seeing how it's applied in chapters 2 and 3 means we can be as certain that God will do this against his enemies in our day as he was not his enemies in Nahum's day. We can be as confident that though the world measures its strength in ways that are oppressive to truth and righteousness and people who follow Christ, God sits on his throne and laughs. He holds them in derision. And every act of rebellion and disobedience against God that his enemies take and every harm that they do God's people with glee and delight is yet more judgment piling up for when the wrath of God is finally poured out in full against all unrighteousness. That's that's a good promise to remember. We don't have to apply it to individual people as we pray for the conversion of those people. But it is good for God's people to remember that this, this evil that they're doing matters. It matters deeply to God. And if they do not repent, God's judgment is mightier than the lion. It's more destructive than the locusts. So, reinforces two key points. God has not forgotten his people. God's people feel like, we started out by reading the psalm, How long, O Lord? It feels like we're forgotten. That's not new. (laughs) That's what comes of trying to be faithful in a world that is as disordered by evil and wickedness as this world is. Why do the wicked prosper? Because the world prospers them. God sees, and a sovereign God will bring about justice for his people. And God is always at work preserving and preparing the remnant for blessing. Nahum is all about the theology of divine sovereignty and judgment. The specific lens is Assyria's fall. Nobody in the world at this time can even imagine the Assyrian Empire falling. Along come the Romans. right? Nobody can imagine the Babylonians falling. It happens. (laughs) All of these empires think that they are completely bulletproof. And they all fall when they set themselves up against God. Divine retribution for God's enemies is half the picture. 
But there's also the good news of preparing the remnant uh, in righteousness for their God. Uh, Megan, will you read chapter 1, verse 15? Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Y'all ever heard that phrase before? The feet and the good news? Romans 10, 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And Paul applies what God does in sending his word. Comfort. Nahum. He sends his Nahum to his people to comfort them in their distress. And Paul says that is the preaching of the gospel in a world that is nuts. (laughs) The preaching of the word of Christ in a world gone nuts is the fulfillment of Nahum. Uh, And so it's this promise. It's not the Assyrian dominion. It's not the Roman dominion that's to come. It is the promise of God that will be the final word in history. And the waiting follower of God crying out, as in the Psalms, in Nahum's day, could cry out and look forward with hope because this is who God is and this is what God will do. And God sends not immediate deliverance, to comfort his people. He sends his word to comfort his people. That's Nahum.